Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems adopt technologies. I am your host, Tiasha Zaitz, and our topic today will be improved management of mental health. On April 15 this year, a panel of experts published a position paper online in The Lancet Psychiatry where they outlined the proposed government response to curb the long-term profound and pervasive impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on mental health. Undoubtedly, the global lockdown caused a lot of anxiety in some individuals, depression in others, and it's fair to assume that some medical professionals will suffer from PTSD after the worst is over. The positive news is that by today, we have many validated digital tools and programs to help patients deal with mental health problems remotely. I spoke with Chris Mulero, who is a co-founder of Neuroflow, a healthcare technology company whose goal is to bridge the gap between mental and physical health in all care settings. Chris first started thinking about the need for better mental health support and care coordination when he was still working for the US Army. Upon return from his mission in Iraq, he started noticing how veterans and civilians alike face too many barriers when it comes to receiving appropriate, timely care. In this discussion, you will hear why is access to mental health care still problematic, how can digital tools support providers and patients, and what trends are already visible because of the COVID-19 pandemic. One of the things that the CDC, WHO and other authorities advise us of doing in case of stress, anxiety, fear, sadness and loneliness in these unprecedented times is to get plenty of sleep, avoid alcohol and drugs, try to eat healthy, keep in contact with other people, try to de-stress with deep breaths and meditation. In fact, the music you hear in the background, was composed by the pop artist based in New York, Cheryl B. Engelhardt, exactly for that purpose. Cheryl suffered from debilitating panic attacks her entire life and tried many coping strategies, and in the end, she composed an album called Luminary and started a daily meditation practice. If you wish to find inner calm with the help of her music, you can access it for free on all streaming platforms and meditation apps, Inside Timer and Simple Habits. I added the link to the music in the show notes. Now, let's go to the discussion with Chris Molero for Neuroflow. Enjoy the discussion or read the recap on our website www.facesofdigitalhealth.com. The direct link to the summary of the show is also in the show notes, as well as the link to the recommendations regarding mental health by WHO and the CDC.
Chris, tell me, we are going to talk about mental health today and Neuroflow, which is a platform or a company that you founded, is meant for remotely tracking and managing mental health. Let's go to the beginning of the story. The company was founded after you came back from war. You served in the army for five years, including a tour in Iraq as a platoon leader. I think you were hardly 22 years old when you did that, right? That's right. I, I celebrated my 23rd birthday with my soldiers. It's kind of hard to imagine how young the soldiers are. I think we sometimes forget about that. I was just thinking now that the brain is actually still developing till the year of 25. So I'm now considering what the effects of PTSD and the trauma that one can endure in war be like for such young people. I think it's kind of like this paradoxical environment because you're in one side of you has to, for lack of a better term, grow up quickly in order to get the mission done and be an effective partner for your fellow soldiers. And you have the benefit of having years of training behind you. It's not like I enlisted at 22 and then three months later I got shipped out. I spent four years at the U.S. Military Academy and then another year of training after graduating and commissioning. So there was extensive training and so forth, but you know, you can only have so much training to prepare you for some of the stressors and the environment like that. So, you know, on the other side of the coin is you're not prepared for what you're going to endure. And then you have to rely on your support system and, and the resources at your disposal after you get home. And the good news is that there's a tremendous amount of resources. I mean, they they didn't do this all the time, but they by the time I was old enough to be in the army, you know, they acknowledged the risk of PTSD and so forth. And they had put a lot of resources and money into developing the mental health centers and putting and hiring more psychologists and everything. So there was a lot of support. It was just then a matter of accessing it and, and getting the help that you needed. I was actually just looking at the Veterans Affairs Association website earlier and was surprised to see that the National Center for PTSD was created already in 1989. And then various new activities were added on along the years and more research or more efforts were put in place in 2014 and later on. So perhaps from, from your perspective, how do you see the changes towards the attitude uh, about mental health and PTSD? You said that resources are there, but access is the problem. For the longest time, it was always mental health was treated very separately than physical health. You know, you had your hospital or your primary care clinic, or your physical therapy clinic that you'd go and that would obviously be for your muscles and skeletal system and, you know, the, your physical health. And then you know, mental health never even talked about in the same sentence. Right? We kind of hold those care providers in different veins and with different credentialing systems and so forth. And so th there was always this major gap and divide between treating your physical health and your mental health. And, and that's a huge problem because it sounds intuitive when you say it out loud, but it's all one system and one affects the other. If you're depressed, you're gonna have worse physical outcomes, you're gonna feel worse. And if you feel worse and you have physical ailments, chronic illnesses, 
you're going to have a higher risk of depression or anxiety, PTSD, and so forth. And so that gap needs to be closed and needs to be bridged if we're going to truly treat the whole person and see sustained benefits. And having access to those resources, no matter where you're getting treated, is a key thing that needs to be addressed if we're going to move forward in a positive direction. You know, the good news is, though, I think that that change is starting to be addressed. It's it's not there yet, though. You said before that uh, when you went on your tour that you were not prepared because you can't really be prepared. So how do you prepare for something that you know in advance is impossible to prepare for? And what was the difference between going on tour with all the training you had behind you and then coming back, you know, maybe disillusionment or, or just the major divide between what you could possibly expect and what were the consequences of being a part of an experience like that? Let me step back for a second. So it, it's not an accurate assessment if I were to say there's nothing you could do to prepare. There are certain things that you could do to prepare, but there are certain aspects in that which you know can't be prepared beforehand. But what you can do to, to prepare for it is give yourself a sense of perspective of where you are before this happened, you know, before you deploy and or before you go through a stressful ordeal. And by the way, this can be applied to anyone, I think, not not just people in the military. But, you know, what we would do is we would ensure that we were trained so that we could endure the challenging situation we were in, whether that was a combat situation or a training environment and so forth. And then it's there's an educational component then too, and you can prepare with that. So that you know, I being able to identify the signs that you are stressed or that you're having sleep issues or that you may be struggling with depression, and then knowing where to go for help. A big part of that gap in care is either one people not knowing that there's an issue because it happens so gradually, typically, you know, over the course of a year deployment that you don't really notice the change happening until you're not sleeping, you're having nightmares or, you know, that sort of thing. And then they don't know where to go or what the consequences are if they do go get that help. There's a big misnomer around that, like you can lose your job if you are diagnosed with depression or you'll lose your security clearance or you will hurt career progression or there's these myths surrounding about the consequences or they just don't know where to go for the support. So what you can do to prepare for it is try to educate ourselves the most possible way of what the resources are out there. So to which extent is mental health today still a myth in the sense that the fear from consequences in your job and in your social life are unnecessary or are just basically unnecessary fears? Yeah, I think they're misplaced fears. I mean, they're just they're fears based on on myths that don't exist out there, right? They're they're based on it's just a fact of misunderstanding. If I call the suicide prevention line, the police aren't going to show up at my front door and like take me away. That line is there to be a support system, not not to have negative consequences. You know, if I am telling my primary care doctor that I'm having substance use issues or, or um, addiction related issues or I can't sleep because of trauma related nightmares he or she's not going to stop caring for my physical health if anything he's going to be able to more effectively care for my physical health because he's then accounting for the mental aspects of that and how they're you know affecting one another 
So I think it's just about, you know, there, there's a stigma associated with it. And the more that we can educate each other, the more that we can bridge that divide and the more that we can help the physical health community understand what the different levels of care are, that not everybody needs an antidepressant, then we start making that treatment more effective. Neuroflow is a few years old startup. What kind of changes are you noticing in that sense? So the attitude to the treatment and the interventions that one can undertake to solve mental health problems. So to which extent do you see that new ideas are coming out, that new technologies are being used to curb those uh, problems, not just prescribe some medications to a person and hope that they're going to fix the issues through that means? Neuroflow is doing two things. Um, we're helping providers measure outcomes and conduct measurement-based care and treatment, which historically has never happened, especially in for mental health. And we are enabling physicians across specialties, so not just mental health, but any physical health illness, helping them integrate mental health treatment planning and assessments into their workflow. And, you know, those two aspects, as far as mental health is related, are not new in theory. They're well-researched. They've been discussed for decades now, but they've never been really adopted. And so I think just by the virtue of our growth as a company and us being adopted is evidence that things are changing and moving in the right direction, that people are now not just talking about these evidence-based principles of measurement-based care and collaborative care, but they're moving to the next step in adopting them and using technology to help that adoption occur in a more efficient way and, a, and in a quicker manner. Can you, just for the clarity's sake, describe very briefly how Neuroflow platform looks like for the provider and for the patient? Very simple. You go in for your primary care annual wellness visit and they typically will give somebody a paper and pen questionnaire. You know, depending on which questionnaire, it's anywhere from two questions to usually nine questions long. And then they'll manually input that into your health record. And depending on how you score on that questionnaire, they'll make a diagnosis and may or may not prescribe you a medication. And then that's it regarding mental health. They'll say, look, you should go see, um, here's a referral to a psychologist if you want to go see it to help with your anxiety. And then it's really the ownership is on the patient then to follow up, adhere with that and engage with that component of their treatment. And the tragedy of that is we know that of the in, in the U.S., 40 to 50 million people a year have a mental health diagnosis. And yet we know that two thirds of them will never follow up and engage with their treatment. And that's a massive number. And so where we come into play is rather than doing that assessment once a year on paper and pen, we do that through digital means, whether uh, we have an app, we also have a web based tool that we can collect that data that's well-researched and evidence-based on a more longitudinal timeframe. So we're collecting it more often and more consistent and then providing that feedback in real time to the physicians and the care team so they can understand how you're doing overall, not just how your temperature is or how your blood pressure is, but also how your mental health state is. And then based on clinical guidelines, we help make treatment recommendations. Should this person 
go see a therapist? Um, should they see a psychologist? Is medication required or, or recommended? And then we then engage the patient with psychoeducation and mindfulness and meditation elements through the app um, that they can be rewarded various points and so forth that could be re redeemed for gift cards. And so it's really about engaging the patient with educational materials and then measuring outcomes, providing that data back to the physicians so they can make more informed treatment decisions. And that aspect right there is really what is key because there's a lot of apps out there that have cognitive behavioral therapy built in. There's a lot of apps out there that have, you know, journal entries or mood ratings, but they, they all don't communicate that back to the care team so they can um, engage in what's known as remote patient monitoring and use that data to treat you more effectively. You know, over the last three years at Neuroflow, that's what we've gotten right really well and what we've worked really, really hard with, with now thousands of physicians and providers to be able to do that effectively at scale. Is it possible to say what would be the standard of care in this whole digital universe? So what kind of solutions are used apart from following mindfulness or cognitive behavioral therapy recommendations through the app? To which extent is VR, for example, already used in practice since VR has proven positive effects? on PTSD and other mental health disorders. Of course, we're talking about specific programs designed to achieve that goal. VR is very interesting, especially for things like prolonged exposure therapy with PTSD. I'm of the thought and the belief that technology isn't, at least in the, in the short term, so I'm talking next you know, two to five years, technology is not going to replace any of the evidence-based therapeutics Now, whether they're digital therapeutics or antidepressants and so forth, we're not going to reinvent cognitive behavioral therapy, which has been researched for decades now. But what technology does enable, it's a new way to engage with that evidence-based therapy. So cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, traditionally, if I was engaging with it, I'd be given a packet through by my therapist, which literally it's called homework. And it's like journal entries and logs that I'd keep in there. And it's thought exercises they would have me do. And when I paper and pen one, who knows if I'm doing it, if I am doing it, my provider's not getting that feedback. I might lose it or forget about it. And then even if I do do it, that is limited to just that paper, just that person. We're not getting the benefit of having the anonymized private information, but being used at the population health level. So if we digitize it now, you're able to then scale that up and get the benefit of having that those insights across masses in a population. And you're able to then automate reminders and encourage or nudge positive behavior change and doing your exercises. Um, so then you get to things like Uh, VR, which can be used in uh, exposure therapy. And there's a bunch of others. I mean, there's a lot of evidence-based practices that can be enabled via technology. And so that's what we've done at Neuroflow is we're not reinventing the wheel when it comes to technology. In fact, if you're a provider, you can go onto the dashboard and you can change, you can put in your own materials and content and 
You can create your own care templates, which are then delivered to your patients. Neuroflow is not aiming to drive how these you know, illnesses are treated. We're changing how they're delivered and then how they're measured, but not with the specific what is behind them, if that makes sense. Yeah, and since you mentioned the population health and what you can gather from uh, digitized data, I do wonder what trends are you seeing in the current unprecedented time during the COVID-19 pandemic? On April 15, in the Lancet Psychiatry, a panel of experts published a position paper saying that the government response will need to address a long-term profound and pervasive impact of the pandemic on mental health, either due to self-isolation or due to anxiety and other consequences brought by this um, situation. If you think about what's going on right now, right, between being isolated and quarantined, anxiety about job security and being able to take care of our families and just the virus itself, the entire world is going through a sustained traumatic event all at once. And that can have profoundly challenging and negative effects if not recognized and then handled appropriately. And I think you're already starting to see those signs. At the beginning of this week, I read in the um, APA that calls and text messages to the crisis text line and the suicide prevention line were up 40% in April compared to uh, February. You know, that's just incredible, right? Huge rise. And on our side, on our data, we're seeing more patients being invited to the platform than ever before through more providers and more are scoring positively on anxiety scales like the G87 and depression scales like the PHQ9. From a population health element, we have the benefit of now being able to see that. So, you know, we keep talking about it. We say, oh, there's going to be a mental health crisis. The second wave issue of COVID-19 is going to be related with mental health and these challenges. Look, I think we recognize that the data supporting it. Now we have to do something about it, right? Otherwise, it's going to be a big issue. So basically, what you're saying is that this is actually an opportunity in the sense that because this is 2020 and because we have so many digital tools that can address mental health this could actually be a smaller problem in the end, much smaller than it has to be, right? We have an opportunity to at least address it, whether we address it or whether we have the tools to really address it well enough, I think is still to be determined, obviously, but we have the data to show these upward trends. It's not a guessing game anymore of if it's going to be a problem. We know that this is going to be a challenge. So if you have the right data, then it gives you the opportunity to make the appropriate adjustments. That's what measurement-based care is all about, is that if I'm providing care to you and I'm able to measure objectively that things are not getting better, um, it would be like foolhardy to just continue down that path, right? Like, so if I'm actually seeing like, okay, things are not getting better, let's, now we know that, so let's adjust your treatment to be more effective for you as an individual. And, you know, and for the longest time, mental health has been more or less a, more very subjective and a guessing game of how are you feeling today or are the antidepressants working and they don't they haven't objectively measured those outcomes over time and with population health tools and technology we can not only measure that at the 
micro level, which is the individual patient level, but we could then measure that at the macro level across the population so we could see trends and, you know, prepare appropriately. To which extent do you think that's possible to measure automatically? So avoiding the fact that people would need to log in their data, write their diaries, even if in a digital form. The gold standard today, the standard of care are what's called patient reported outcomes or probes that are, you know, these questionnaires that are for a variety of different illnesses, whether they're depression or trauma related or anxiety that are questionnaires that require login and go in and input them or paper and pen. And that hasn't changed. But what has changed is there is a lot of research going on and new technologies that are starting to suggest that maybe there are more passive ways about uh, measuring that. So there's things called a uh, digital phenotype. So looking at like your social media data and correlating that to your mental health state. There's a lot of research that's very promising around voice analysis and facial analysis. The muscles in your face and the inflections in your voice have things called micro expressions. I mean, they happen for a nanosecond. You and I wouldn't be able to notice it, but those micro expressions you know, might be a slight increase, sudden increase in the tone of my voice or a twinge in my a muscle in my face that are highly correlated to be suggestive of certain mental health states or, uh, you know, mind states that you're in, whether it's anxious or f fearful or happy and so forth. So we can use these different type of digital means, whether it's your social media data or the facial expressions or voice analysis to more passively understand and get a picture of you from a mental health standpoint. But there's still research to be done and there's still ongoing, you know, tests and, and analysis and so forth. And then there's, of course, the challenge with those things that are associated with privacy and the concerns with people that has like, I don't want people looking at my social media to, to see if I'm anxious or depressed or, or whatnot. And, you know, at Neuroflow and other digital health companies uh, need to t continue to prioritize security and patient privacy first and foremost, because if we don't have the patient buy-in and the acknowledgement that these things can be beneficial, it's all for nothing then, because then the patients won't engage with it in the, in the first place. So, you know, HIPAA compliance and GDPR and making sure that data is protected and secured as if it was our own is paramount and, and very important to make this successful. It's interesting that you mentioned privacy because I think it's one topic that's opening a lot of different debates during the pandemic. On the one hand, leaving pandemic aside, once the patient privacy or just individual's privacy is connected to extrapolating data from what we post publicly. First of all, uh, I think that potentially data can be inaccurate when people start using these platforms uh, differently, you know, when they st start being more mindful on what they post and what they want to express or just uh, the face that they want to show uh, on those platforms. And the second problem COVID related is that it seems that a lot of solutions or a lot of ideas about tracking people are suddenly much more acceptable because we want to be able to track people during the time when it's imperative to know who the person was in contact with to limit the um, spread of the virus which, of course, for the critics, 
means that what will happen after this crisis with these measures in place. There are some indications that potentially we would have to struggle a lot to just put higher restrictions back on, you know, if those restrictions about privacy and the tracking loosen up a little bit uh, during this time. I mean, for I could talk about what we do in our in the platform in Neuroflow experience. So anything that you would provide the platform is requires your opt-in and consent. Like for example, we track, we tie in with wearable devices like Apple Health and Google Fit and the watches and so forth. That data can be very informative of how you're doing overall as a patient and then help provide a better experience for you. And we secure that data the same that we would secure any other medical information that lives in the platform. But before we use any of that sort of data for diagnostic purposes or, or whatnot, there needs to be a lot more research that occurs. And, you know, that's why we're, you know, we say that these are data points, these are variables to help overall monitor and guide decisions, but they're not diagnostics. That's why Neuroflow is a clinical tool that's not available to the consumers. I, I have friends all the time that ask, oh, could I get access to Neuroflow? And the, the answer is they have to be invited by a healthcare provider or a health insurance plan that they're a member of. You're also enabling indisciplinary care, right? Absolutely. That's one of our biggest tenets is that, I mean, for example, we're used in Jefferson's Health uh, right here in Philadelphia in their OBGYN clinics. So we were used with medical doctors that are treating uh, women and expectant mothers and new mothers that are either are in pregnancy currently or just, just gave birth. Uh, we work with them to assist with postpartum depression and perinatal depression. We're used by a lot of pain management doctors. So if you think about like patients that struggle with chronic pain, there's such a high comorbidity rate with chronic pain and anxiety or depression when you're in pain every day. And so being able to not only treat their symptoms related to pain, but treat the mental health aspect of that is incredibly powerful. I mean, it leads, not only does it lead to better outcomes, it does so quicker because you're taking care of the, the whole patient. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about this collaborative and integrated care uh, model? So collaborative and integrated care was already researched and has been researched for the last uh, 50, 40, 50 years, but somehow the adoption has been tepid. And I wonder why that is, in your opinion. Obviously, all the medical specialties are getting more and more diversified with new data coming in and subspecialties uh, popping up. But still, to which extent is collaborative care just uh, enabling different doctors to access patient data from a specific patient? And to which extent does it also encourage the actual communication among those doctors around a patient? You know, it appears that this has been, you know, research for decades now, and it shows that it, it works and it leads to better outcomes. Why is why has it not been adopted more widely? I think there's two main reasons for that. One, the complexity required to do it. And, you know, it's not really understood as well. Mental health, again, is is kind of this thing that for for the longest time has been treated separately than your physical health. And if you're going to bring a mental health specialist into your practice as a medical doctor, 
they're not really sure how to use them or there's extra time that is required there. If I'm treating you for high blood pressure, I, I only have like 15 minutes with you during a regular visit. So that 15 minutes goes by really quickly. I don't have like the, the normal notion was I don't have time or the experience or expertise to really worry about the mental health aspect of your health. So that that's one reason. And the other reason is the policies and the economics didn't align with the needs in the model. So their insurance companies never reimbursed as much for mental health care or integrated care. And, you know, if I'm a doctor and I only have 15 minutes to treat you, I'm trying to treat you as efficiently as possible for, as a doctor, my time is my livelihood. So I Unfortunately or fortunately, it depends how you look at it. But the, the fact of the matter is that they're running a business, too, and they're, the economic model just wasn't aligned with the incentives to really concern themselves with behavioral health. I hate to put it that way, but I think that's as accurate as you can, as you can say it. So what has happened recently and why I think you're starting to see adoption more and more in these models is because one technology has come into play. So Neuroflow and other companies are now enabling that integration of work to be able to happen a lot more effectively. You're able to automate a lot of the activities that you would have to normally do in integrated care without needing additional people. So you can make it more efficient and you can reduce the burden of adopting it. And then number two is the economic models are aligning. So not only are there reimbursement models and new codes that have come out in just the last few years, but there's a preponderance of evidence that shows if you integrate behavioral health care, not only will your outcomes improve, but your cost of care will be dramatically reduced. And so when people then start looking at those numbers and say, wait a second, I can make more money because of the reimbursements and I can save the healthcare system money because the cost of care is going to go lower. And I can do so in a more efficient manner. You're removing all the barriers that used to exist to, that were in the way of this sort of system being adopted. Um, and I think that's what you've been seeing over the last few years. And, and the hopefully that trend continues. So given that you mentioned the reimbursement, how does uh, Neuroflow fit into the whole reimbursement scheme? Is it working with insurance just something that you don't have to be concerned with because you're working directly with providers? What's the business model that you are following? So we work with insurance payers, but not for the reimbursement aspect. We do so as a care management and member benefit for their uh, members. And Involving the reimbursement for the providers, you're exactly right. So, the, you know, our relationship in a, from a clinical aspect is with the hospitals. It's with the with the physicians directly, and then our software system helps identify what the appropriate reimbursement codes are, and then documents that for them and their staff, and then they'll seek that submit for that reimbursement themselves with the with the health plans. Even that you're working in the mental health space. What are you learning from this pandemic? 
And the second question is, how many ideas are you getting or where are you thinking that you are going to go in the next few years in the development of the product since you have very ambitious and uh, very inspiring company values among them having a healthy disregard for for the impossible so yeah just be on a mission to build social value so um, what's your kind of higher goal if that's even possible given that products do change over time as do ideas and trends how to approach uh, problems. I appreciate you bringing up our values. They're very, they're near and dear to us as a company. We have, you know, we've only been in business for three years now and we have a team of a little over 40 employees and we hire against those values and we, we retain against those values and promote against those values. It's, we really try to espouse them every day, working and living uh, the values while, you know, being at the company. And, to that end, right, the big vision of the company isn't, it's going to sound maybe backwards, but it's not related to the product or the any features that we can build. Because in the end, it's not really about our company. It's about the problem that we're trying to solve. And that's improving access and engagement uh, to mental health so that patients can feel better faster. And the fact is, this year, we're going to have a couple of hundred thousand patients that have access to our platform. And we've shown a significantly improved mental health rate, improved PHQ-9 scores for depression, improved GAD-7 scores. And so we're very bullish and excited that we're a resource to care teams and to patients to get them better. But in the end, a couple of hundred thousand people on the platform, we're excited about that. But that's just a small, small fraction of all of the people that we know struggle on, you know, every day, every year. As a company, our ambitions are to be a resource to to everybody that that needs this sort of help. We can create a happier world, and when you're happier, you're more productive, you're nicer to people, and you see the kind of the snowball effect, the downhill effect with with all of that. And you know that kind of mission is bigger than any one person. As the co-founder and CEO of Neuroflow, I hope one day this company will be bigger than than any one person. Like it is, I view this as my, as a privilege that I have to earn every day to be a part of this company. It doesn't matter if I'm the co-founder. Even how big of a problem mental health can be during the, the pandemic, are you seeing any increased interest from the investors for this area in digital health? Well, that's a good question. I don't know if I'm the best person to ask that because we, at this time at least, because we, uh, as a company, we uh, closed a Series A investment round in December and have been able to, uh, you know, work with our investment partners from that round and don't need the money right now. But what we have been finding is that our customers, so hospitals and health plans, you know, some of the private clinics have recognized the need for this and and our demand in the marketplace has grown significantly. So I guess that's a different type of funding. It's it's revenue instead of investments. So I don't I don't have the perspective on the investment just yet. I'm not sure if the mental health need has increased substantially. I think people have just become more aware of it and are more open to talking about it now. And so post COVID-19, I think we live in a world where people are more hyper aware and are more open to discussing these challenges and coming up with solutions around them as opposed to 
hiding from them and saying that there's there are no issues here. And so we have an opportunity post COVID-19 when the world gets back to a normal place to take those lessons learned and say, wait a second, we could get remote support and we could get mental health support through non-traditional means and I can work on resilience. And by the way, unfortunately, the way the world works, this isn't going to be the last challenging thing that that happens. If it's not uh, a pandemic next time, it's a natural disaster like an earthquake or a, or a hurricane or, you know, God forbid, a, a mass shooting or personal life. You go through your own traumatic events, a car accident or something. And so recognizing the need for mental health before the next tragedy, I think, is going to be a big lesson learned that I hope everybody takes away from that and says it's, you know, let's be more prepared so that we're as a group, as a collective, we can we can handle it just like we did before we went to combat in the army, right? Just like we knew that we were going to a tough situation, we tried to be as prepared as possible from a, a resiliency and mental health standpoint. I think we could do the same thing as, as just neighbors of each other uh, in this world. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. If you like the show, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast. This is the fuel for the show and helps others interested in digital health find the show as well. To browse through past episodes and find more about the podcast, go to www.facesofdigitalhealth.com. And of course, stay tuned. <laughs>